I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey, this is Mark the Clive Lowe and you're checking out Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. You're checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the Rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine. Man, it's that rare rainy day in Los Angeles. I'm feeling that rainy day energy. And today's guest, he makes the kind of music that just makes the sun come out. If it's uh, cold and shitty where you are, you definitely want to put on some Mark DeClivelo. Mark is a DJ, musician, songwriter. Uh, blending jazz, soul, hip-hop, house, sounds from around the world. If you haven't seen his live remixes, you definitely want to check that out on YouTube or on his website. If you haven't been to his party church, you're going to have to wait until after the pandemic, but uh, it's the place to be. Mark's got some great stories for us about uh, the cultural differences that affect his music, not only his own background, um, coming from New Zealand and, and his Japanese heritage, but also uh, just playing around the world and, and how that how that affects uh, you know what he plays on stage, the music that he makes. Uh, he gives some thoughts on on what's wrong with Mark Geiger buying up music venues right now during this pandemic. Um, some some interesting thoughts on that, and you know his his philosophy or his strategy about collaboration and community that guides everything he does. This is a really good interview, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. Let's get into it right now. Nice. Well, man, thank you for making time to do this. I'm, no, thanks uh, for reaching out. It's cool, man. Nah, it's great. I've, I've been following you, you know, maybe from the beginning, and uh, <laughs> finally had a chance to, to dig into it a little bit and talk about, you know, the journey and what you're up to next and, and all that stuff. Nice, um, I dig it. But uh, if you don't mind, I always like to go back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you, do you, 
Do you remember the first record you ever bought? <laughs> I remember the first cassette tape I bought for sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, was, I grew up in New Zealand and had two, had two older brothers. And so there were a few hand-me-down albums for sure. sure. And they were pretty influential as far as, you know, when you're, I don't know, six years old or seven years old, you're given something like that. Um, yeah. But then when I was 10, I went to Japan for the first time. My mom's Japanese, so I was meeting family and it was the start of kind of annual trips. Mm. And so this is 1984. So the Walkman is king, yeah. of, king of the hill, right? For sure. so, my, so I get there, my uncle, Takaji, he's like, oh, you don't have a Walkman? We've got to go, go, go get one right now. So he took me out to Akihabara, which is like the, they call it electric city. Like every mm -hmm. shop has electronics in there in Tokyo. Mm. And so we go to Akihabara and he, gets, he buys me a Walkman. I was like, well, I better get something to put in it. And so I grabbed, I literally grabbed the first, I was 10 years old, grabbed the first two cassette tapes that were there kind of thing. Okay. One was, one was the best of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Like some, I think it was some kind of, you know, unofficial best of, but it was, you know, but sure. that was, that was killer. And the other one was the, it had just come out was um, like a virgin, Madonna. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was 10 years old in Tokyo. Those two were the soundtrack for that trip. That's so funny. <laughs> right? Shit, Pettibone. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I mean, first of all, like, what, two amazing records to start with. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny how, you know, those, you know, music has that power to bring us to those moments. Oh, my life. God, yeah. Absolutely, you know. Man. And so and they, like, you know, we, we associate them with time and place and, exactly. and the smells and, and sights and all that around us. Exactly. So, you know, for me, as much as the, you know, the artist part, path I've kind of for, I've been on and forged, as much as that's the antithesis to like a virgin, I can't sure. but help but give it up to that record. Like, you know, that, yeah. that cassette tape was soundtrack to first trip to Japan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting after that, just on the, getting a music tip growing up in New Zealand, obviously pre-internet, mm -hmm. you know, the, the things which, you know, before I, in, in between listening to what my brothers listened to and finding my own taste, what would fill that would be the music, local music media. Sure. And so this interesting filtration of UK music, US music, and, and some New Zealand and Australian music. Mm -hmm. At that time, I didn't know which was which, like, it's just music. Like, I didn't right. Yeah. Like there were some New Zealand bands, I was shocked a couple of years later to learn, wow, they're actually from New Zealand. They're not English or American mm. or whatever. So I didn't have that discernment. Um, but that would mean whatever was the big record would get right. through because it's New Zealand. Right. And then we had a thing where it was the lowest number of units to go gold of any kind of major country in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the majors would often, ex would often experiment with that. Like, um, like Porter's Head went gold in New Zealand first. Oh, wow. And then because it was, you know, I presume it was on through, you know, Universal or Sony or one of the, one of the bigs, right? Right. And so they would have been like at head office, well, look, we're gold in this one territory, so let's get gold everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had this kind of interesting little kind of testing ground for, for stuff there. Sure. <laughs> you know, and it is so interesting when you see, um, you know, when you travel the world, as I'm sure you do, and you see what artists are big in different places. Right. And a lot of times, you know, we take it for granted here in L.A. or in the, the States or mm -hmm. London or 
Right, because we have access to all music at all times. Of right? course, and yeah. Every artist comes through here, yeah. No matter what, but then you know you go to these other countries, and it's like, you know, the artists they toured through this place that doesn't get artists for sure, and then they just love them for for life. Absolutely, man. Seen so much of that go down, and yeah. And even now, when I remember a few years back, I was thinking, you know, the internet has globalize the music village like if something right. is big somewhere it's big everywhere even relatively speaking in you know niches or mainstream or whatever sure. and then touring i just really notice it's not the case at all you know music's still very right. local oh, yeah. in taste you know even if you're you know if you're in slovenia you can access whatever you want to but the shit that's going to filter into your surroundings that you're going to want to check for it it's going to be quite um, idiosyncratic to where you are. Sure. Um, so I think I, I was I was looking at the digital music culture through through rose colored glasses from there. Yeah. 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 I get but it. it's good I though because then you know different places have their own flavor. You know, it's it's not right. It's not like you know in London walking down the high street and every, it's the same shops on every high street because it's all fully globalized corporations. You know, music mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. still seems free of that, which is amazing. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're still coming to terms with how how the landscape keeps changing, right? Yeah. And as much as we have more access, there's more content, right? And totally. There's, mm -hmm. And there's, you know, when when we were coming up, like, you're, you know, I think you either lived in this one subculture and didn't know the rest, right? Or you kind of like, you know, you sort of dabbled and and mm -hmm. but it took work to to dive deeper. Oh my God! Yeah. Right. And so like, you know, yeah. for me, like, you know, I'm, you know, I was into hip hop. I was into yep. dance music. I was into, you know, reggae. And like, those are three different stores in different neighborhoods. Oh my God. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and so that's a whole day of like, you know, trying to get from one place to another and find the right shit. And, you and, know, that, and, that, and that was in the Bay. Yeah. 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 See that's yeah. And so that's really interesting to hear because if I think of that compared to New Zealand, like, you know, country then of 3 million, I was in a city yeah. of one and a half million, right. You know, pre-internet, blah, blah, blah. And it's the same thing. And it's interesting hearing you say that from a perspective of being in, in the Bay, like in a much bigger place. But I, I remember like, you know, for me, it was, there was one morning at school, like in 1989 and all my friends would listen to like the Pixies and like mm. guitar music, which just didn't resonate with me. Yeah. And then one of my one of my friends walks up to me. He was like a he's he Tongan, not from the Pacific Islands, and walks up to me, has his Walkman, puts it on my head, and it was the first Guy album. Hmm. And that just fucking blew my. I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah, there was there was nothing like it. There was, but but it, it comes from a lineage of reference points that I'd never sure. even heard. Like I, sure, sure, sure. I'd heard I'd heard twenties and thirties jazz through my dad, but I was missing the the sixties and seventies cultural revolution mm. because wow. he he lived in Japan that whole time and he was immersed right. in that in that world post war Japan. Yeah, and so what I got to experience through his record collection skipped just that just didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that led me to like straight into native tongues, hip hop and, 
you know, I, I didn't understand sampling at all, mm-hmm. but I knew that I, last, I was all this music, I was like, I want to be Teddy Riley. So uh-huh. I, I got a keyboard and a drum machine. I didn't know what I was doing. Amazing. But, the, the, but there came a point, like I ended up, that was actually an early precursor to production, like getting together with, like having a couple of bands with friends and you know, mm-hmm. making demo tapes and stuff. But there was a day I woke up and I just went, I did a full 180. I was like, nah, fuck these loops, fuck all this stuff. I want to get into the, 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 you know, into the jazz shit because I grew up playing mm. piano. Mm-hmm. I was like, I just mean that me, the piano, a Miles record, a Coltrane record, a Bramford record kind of thing. And, and w- w- the way you're talking about this before, how it's so hard to jump from things, like that jump for me in like, I guess 92 or 93, around then into jazz, as far as a as a real a passionate focus, like kind of irrationally passionate focus, mm-hmm. it meant that from mm-hmm. that point up to about ninety six, maybe I didn't listen to any hip hop. Mm. Like I mi- I completely fucking missed major artists, wow. like major artists, yeah. and but before that I was like. I was all, you know, brand Nubian, Digital Underground, Third Base, you know, Tribe, mm-hmm. Dela, that was JB's, that was that time. Sure. But then this full pivot meant, and you alluded to it as a listener, but also as, a, as an aspiring you know, professional musician, it's like there's no space to, right. you know, if, I'm, if I'm diving into this world where it's like, oh my God, I just, I just want to be able to, you know, do what Herbie does or something. <laughs> Then there's, sure. there's no, then, then I, I hear someone mentioning Nas or whatever, but I'd be like, I don't have, you know, it's not even, I don't have bandwidth. Yeah. So it's interesting coming back to mid nineties hip hop later as an adult. Yeah, and, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I yeah, this is, I miss a lot of dope shit, but I can still hear it now. And, and sure. And as far as the, the musicality and the production, I felt like there was fighting words I thought there was more richness in the earlier '90s stuff. Um, yeah, more soulfulness, and just for my no, music, uh, yeah, for my musical taste, that was like okay. So I, you know, I, I was, I connected with it deeply at a time when it resonated a lot. And then I hear the the mid '90s stuff that I missed. And I'm like, yeah, production's cool. It's all you know, but there were there weren't many records which changed my way of hearing stuff. Like, mm. you know, the way that the first time I heard, you know, the Yo, the show from a production perspective, I'm like, what the fuck right. is that? You yeah. know, the first day of soul record, you know, just things which they were paradigm shifting in, in, in a lot but, of ways. So how much do you think that, um, like, you know, music I think is, is a reaction, right? Like totally, you know, musicians are products of their environment. Right. And mm-hmm. so, I feel like as a musician, which I'm not, but you know, you're you're either trying to innovate against something that you're already that's the prevailing sound of the time or whatever is influencing you, mm-hmm. or you're, I don't want to say trying to copy because that sounds more negative, but like you're, yeah. you're either you're either falling in or you're working against, right? Totally. So to me, like you know, you think about you're talking about that era, and it's like you know Wu Tang. Uh, 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 you know, Gangstar, mm. uh, the Duck Down, the stuff like, you know, Smith and Wesson, like the, 
what they did was like they stripped out a lot of the musicality totally. that yeah. was in the generation yeah. before the them. Right, so that was their way of being different and establishing yes. their own thing. Yeah, I totally and get so I, that, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's always these ebbs and flows, right? And, you know, uh, uh, you know, in the same way that glam rock, or, you know, that the hair bands got... Uh, right. You know, grunge, right? Who didn't want to be part of that, right? Yeah. Um, no, totally. Yeah, that's really interesting. So wait, back to something you were saying earlier, you know, this understanding about, I mean, you have such a global perspective because of how you grew up. Um, and so that understanding about how different markets, you know, really pick up on different artists. Do, do you use that now? Is that like part of your strategy um, for your own career? I think... I mean, the current situation, the COVID thing has, has put, made me think about it a lot. And, sure. you know, I've been on, on, I've been on tour literally nonstop for 20 years. Yeah. Last time I was in one place this long was 1999. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of got its own beauty to it and, and gives me a lot of perspective on, on different parts of the world. And, and like, if I'm traveling somewhere, like I would casually go on 12 hour flights mm -hmm. like, Oh, it's a gig there. Yeah, it's 12 hours away. Cool. Maybe I'll pick up some more gigs and it'll be a tour or, you know, right. South Africa wants me for one show and it's 30 hours to get there. Cool. You know, um, sure. that was part of, part of the attraction, I guess, too. Um, it was, a, it's a lifestyle mm -hmm. most definitely. Um, mm -hmm. and, but not in a glamorous way, like ironically, it's still schlepping a whole lot of gear, being in economy class all the time, you know, meeting promoters right. for, the, for one day for the first time, then never again. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah. It's weird shit. Um, sure. But kind of, I'm, I'm talking around it, but to your question. So there are definitely places I've been to where I've connected more and audiences have connected more as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Japan is the first one, like that's, which is, it's, it's obvious for me being half Japanese and having grown up there and gone to high school there and, and they've always been huge supporters, but there's also something in the audience there where, especially in club music, there's, and I think K-pop actually has, has a parallel to this. There's an appreciation for a certain musical sensibility that allows for more music mm -hmm. um, in the music, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they were, Japan was like that with jazz back in the day. It's like, you know, they were the, you know, that's why there's all these albums like, you know, Miles in Japan, Coltrane in Japan, yeah. you know, wh whoever. So they, they love that shit. So I, I love the, the depth of committed passion that the Japanese have to things that they love. Mm -hmm. And as a culture, they appreciate craftsmanship and the craft um absolutely and so those are things that are very important to me in what i do and it's oftentimes that doesn't i don't there's a point where i don't care if someone recognizes it or not like i'll do i'll have all my shit and do like a solo live production remix set in a dance floor club and i'm making the shit from scratch in real time as it happens if i don't do anything nothing changes Right. Like, and then after someone's like, oh man, don't DJ set. And sure. so, and so they don't recognize what just happened, but there's a, there's a, there's a flip side compliment to that. It's like, 
oh, that shit was so together. I thought you were DJing. Absolutely. Um, but the Japanese, have, I feel like, and some other countries, but there's that appreciation of craftsmanship as well as love and passion for the, for the music, it combines in this kind of, this wholeness where they can, they can, they can get down and appreciate and mm -hmm. appreciate the idiosyncrasies and subtleties too. Yeah. Um, so I love that there. So Japan's one for sure. South Africa, as much as I said, it's a long way to go. They, I went down there and I was, you know, house music is massive there. Right. Massive. And I, I my first time there, I'm like, yeah, I'm in South Africa, first time. They fucking love house music. Let's go. And so I'm playing this club in Soweto, peak time on a Friday or Saturday. And I, I went from the airport basically to the club for the, that was the first tour, gig of the tour. Mm -hmm. And so I went in, in, in Europe in peak time, you know, there's a BPM relationship that, that works. So, you know, in a house club peak time, you're, you're in the one twenties somewhere and you may end up on the one up to one thirty. like I'm talking, and you know, it varies from subgenre to subgenre, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that's, sure. that's kind of what I would do at a peak time gig in Europe. And so I went in South Africa and did this and I could feel that the shit did not connect. Mm. And I knew that what I was doing was good. So I didn't understand that disconnection. Right. And so then I, I finish and Kat gets on after me, who's, who's DJing, spinning records. And he just was chilling in the cut. Like it was like 110 BPM or something. I was like, oh, what? Yeah. So, I'm <laughs> so I'm talking to him. I'm talking to him about the promoter and some people I've met. And like, you know, South Africans don't like to sweat, man. And so the next gig I did, I started at 100 BPM and peaked at 120, which would be the, where I'd start a regular right. kind of house music gig. Yeah. And they were just in the music so deep. And I realized it was two things. They have a traditional music form called Kwaito mm. and Kwaito and house music have a lot in common, but, quite, but the tempo is definitely more chill. And then when house music, when the tempo is chill, you can hear all the music because it has space to breathe. As soon as you get to conventional house music dance floor tempo, all you really hear is the kick and the hi-hat or like, you know, it's like, right, that's what's, sure. it's just driving it. So then the music becomes secondary to the, to the driving force. Um, so I loved in South Africa, they had this, this difference. It was like looking at the same thing from a whole different perspective. Mm -hmm. And it, and it suited me great. Cause like oftentimes if I'm doing that kind of set, like a dance floor set, sometimes I'll really, min I'll limit or minimize the musicality I put into it. Um, and just make it more about the rhythm and just really drive it. But this, mm -hmm. but in South Africa and like playing in Johannesburg, I was like, cool, I can do whatever I want. I can like play music here. Like, right. So that's, so those, and those are two places which have really resonated and, you know, quite specific idiosyncratic kind of and culturally paralleled ways to appreciate. And maybe that may, I don't know, I never thought about that before, but maybe that's what it comes down to is that there's a, there's a traditional cultural kind of route to the experience. If you're a return listener to Rebel Radio, you've heard me talk about Everly Well before. It's the company that makes at-home lab testing easy. I took the test earlier this year for indoor and outdoor allergies. Um, got the results probably, you know, within 10 days and it helped me better understand what's going on with my allergies, which have plagued me 
my entire life um, and giving me some information I can use help me uh, remember to keep my home free of dust which is a big one for me as I'm sure it is for probably many of you. Everlywell offers over 30 at-home lab tests everything from food sensitivity, STDs, metabolism, testosterone, the list goes on and on. Every test comes with super easy to follow instructions. The um, the results are reviewed by a board certified physician and then you get them and you can even share them with your healthcare provider. They're easy to understand so you know exactly what they mean for you. Right now you can get 20% off an Everly Well at-home lab test. Visit everlywell.com slash rebelradio. Enter the code rebelradio. That's everlywell.com slash rebelradio, code rebelradio, for 20% off your test. Everlywell at-home lab tests. Your answers, your way. So how do you, um, how do you think about that? You know, obviously, you know, you have, you know, you're from New Zealand, you're part Japanese, you spent time in London, you're here in LA, you have this, uh, unique sort of cultural experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, as a creator, your music is always a reflection of who you are and your background and, and all that. Right. And so, like, do you think about accessibility when you're making music? I feel like if the answer was, yeah, hell yes, then I'd be in a, I'd be in a very different career kind of paradigm. Sure. Um, I, I, I think I create for myself primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an it's a introspective experience and um you know the more kind of like there's, there's basically two two sides to my coin you know one's in the jazz world one's in the yeah. dance world electronic world and then, the, then there's a spectrum of those two extremes at any one time it could be at any one point and it can kind of organically move between those as well so depending on the the i guess the aesthetic of what the gig is like if it's a live show whether is it a sit-down club is it a dance floor? You know, if I'm making a record, is it like, do I, do I want this to be perceived as a jazz record? Do I want this to be perceived not as a jazz record, as an electronic record or whatever it might be? Right. So in those terms, there's some consciousness for sure. But as far as, you know, yeah, people will like this. <laughs> I mean, sure. I, th- I think that's, I, th- I personally think that's a bit of a misstep because I think it's easy to underestimate people. Um, mm-hmm. I think people are a lot more surprising than we give them credit for. And then, and then at the same time, I kind of came up, especially in the UK through, through a DJ culture that is very different to what I would call a commercial DJ culture. Like there's, there's, there's a kind of DJ gig where if you're booked, you're going to, you know, you're going to want to throw in some tribe and some Stevie and some Michael and, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm some James Brown and, you know, you, and use those tools to, to capture the crowd. There's a, another kind of culture where, and we had this at the co-op club in London where all that got played every party was shit that was made that week. Mm. You know, it was, you know, pre and just when CDR was coming in, cats were still cutting dub plates, you know, get down there on, on the Saturday afternoon in time for the Sunday party. And, and so you're hearing what your peers are making in real time um 
and then being inspired to go back and create more based on what's been created in that moment. So, yeah, that's cool. So yeah, that's that I related to that more, you know, I'm, I'm creating for the music's sake and, mm -hmm. and the audience when it's functioning as a dance floor, it's different, but the audience is, it's a, it's a voyeur offering to them. You know, it's like, however you want to engage with this and wherever it takes you, I'm cool with that, but I'm here doing my shit anyway. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And I think ultimately, you know, the musicians who try to create for the crowd, that's a big gamble. Yeah, I'm, but it can be, that can give you a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, shit. I mean, but, like, but, but I think like you're back to, you know, back to your beginnings, right? You're either Madonna uh -huh. or you're, or you're Madonna for a minute. Right, 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 right. More likely. Or it fails miserably because you're trying to time the market and um, and uh, and yeah. that's really hard to do, right? Like, you know, yeah. while you're in the studio creating something, culture's moving on. Culture's never stopping. I mean, I think it's doable at this point in history to a point. Like, you know, there, there are definitely genres that I think are stable enough yeah. that you, sure. can, you can do that. And... And I've had, I've had people over the years and recently and 20 years ago be like, man, why don't you do blah, blah, blah. You'd smash that shit. Uh -huh. And, and I, sometimes I'll be like, well, let me try. And the thing is that whatever that blah, blah, blah is, that is a craft, that is a skill. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like if, if some, some like a, no, I don't, don't need to get dizzy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, to say that, like, it would be disrespectful for me to be like, I'm going to make a trap record. Right. Like, I love the production sound sonic of that music. And it does inspire me in different ways, which, but it, I kind of filter it and it gets assimilated and comes out where someone may not even know that that's where the inspiration comes from. Mm. But if I wanted to get in that game, then... I mean, honestly, if it was me myself, I just collaborate with someone who produces that sure. shit really well. But if I wanted to do it myself, that re would require a lot of like study and learning and really, you know, I feel like that with, with a lot of um, like house music or hip hop as well, which is made by people who don't, who haven't really spent time assimilating the culture. Mm -hmm. and which is fine because it comes out of something else it's like oh that's a bit housey right. or whatever but but i think there's definitely whether it's you know rock jazz blues whatever it is hip-hop track there's a history which is yeah. you know inherently part of that lineage and my whole career i've kind of spent kind of let me just ride the, the cracks between everything and see mm -hmm. <laughs> and explore um sure. I, I love that kind of you know, interfacing two different worlds and, you know, like jazz hybridity is a very common thing now, but it really wasn't. Right. And so working out how to kind of, you know, round hole, square peg kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, our 
relationship to jazz, especially in America. Uh-huh. Right. And I think, you know, right now we're having this renaissance of jazz influence in, in popular music. Right. Right. Uh, you know, with Terrace Martin, Kamasi, mm. uh, you know, what Adrian Young's doing, what, yeah. uh, right. Like there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a thing happening right now. Mm. And I feel like that happens over the years. Right. In cycles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yet, you know, jazz is far as a genre. It's pretty far away from popular music. Mm-hmm. Right. But it but it continues. I guess it keeps finding its way back into culture in really important <laughs> ways. Right. And, yeah, man. And there's a lot of, you know, you think of jazz as the original American music, the original black music in America. Totally. Um, and so, I don't know, I I wonder if you have thoughts on why, what, you know, what is it about jazz or about us as people that, um, that keep that, keeps that connection. Yeah, man. So strong. I mean, I, I think that at the heart of at the heart of what jazz is is improvisation and yeah. and group improvisation which is conversation mm. um and i think by nature of that there's always going to be the the kind of boundary breaking envelope pushing forefront of like the vanguard of the of the genre yeah. um yeah it's been around so long now that we'll always have cocktail jazz smooth jazz and whatever else jazz and like there's you know definitely sure. there's it's it's segmented but there's definitely also a vanguard pushing it forward um and though that changes you know con con you know constantly it's changing due to the new, new generation coming in and new mm-hmm. ideas and stuff um so i think i just think it's inevitable that that wave of constant change is going to intersect with pop culture you know, every seventh wave or whatever, mm-hmm. and just, and, and catch a ride. You know, it's, it was, I mean, it's interesting with the, with the to pimp a butterfly, you know, right. That is obviously an amalgamation of these, these sounds, but also that couldn't have existed without, you know, tribes records and, you know, things that kind of laid the blueprint for the idea of jazz being in hip hop. Yeah. And then those records couldn't have happened without, you know, you know, tip growing up and I'm sure his parents or someone playing these dope ass records and sure. Yeah. You know, so that, yeah, it's definitely, it's part of that lineage. Um, and, 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 and it's, you know, it's absolutely no question black American music, but the way it's now global and that music is, you know, it's taught, it's learned, it's jammed and it's, and it's melded into, local music local pop music local underground music and in, in the most out kind of crazy countries it's, it's it's like become this kind of beautiful kind of web that's just kind of gone around the world and and really become ingrained in in the culture i mean you know john williams came up through that you know mm. there are people who made their names in different parts of the music industry you know Quincy Jones is kind of the obvious, but he was a jazz trumpet player, you know, and then to go from that to, you know, sure. Thriller, I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, so I discovered jazz really through hip hop. Right. 
yeah. you know, f- from sampling. And then, uh, and I was at UCLA and I took a jazz class from nice. Gerald Wilson. Oh, nice. <laughs> it was like, it was a it changed my life. Right. But, Love it. um, but you had to listen to a lot of jazz in, in that class. And so I was listening to, you know, 88.1, the community station uh-huh. here in LA that plays jazz and going out to see shows. And I remember just being amazed Cause that's like old man jazz, right? That's straight yeah. ahead, right? You know, um, and I remember being amazed by the idea that at one point this was subversive, controversial music, right? Right, and like so subversive, yeah. And that's crazy, right? <laughs> that uh, you know, Jerry Mulligan, or you know, I mean, forget about the way out, you know, the the monks and the Pharrell Sanders, like the but just like stuff that is really that you hear, you know, in Macy's, right? You know, at the, at the Christmas season now is like <laughs> that was rebel music. Yeah, yeah, man, activism, absolutely. I mean, that's my my favorite period in American acoustic jazz is like sixty, kind of sixty two to sixty seven. Yeah, and you know, not growing up in this country and not knowing the you know, I, I knew the, the brush, broad brushstrokes of the history, but now, you know, getting, understanding the, 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 the dates more and the timelines and stuff, it's amazing thinking what Black America was going through at that time. Sure. And the music was just so powerful and so, you know, potently ingrained with resistance and activism. And, and like you say, yeah, now it's, it's playing at the restaurant while you have dinner. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> totally. But that's the thing. And now we've lived long enough that, that you know, 90s hip hop is playing in the restaurant when we have dinner. For real. For right? Real. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I never thought that would happen. I remember, you know, there was, <laughs> there was places we used to go specifically because, you know, there was a Thai place in Hollywood that played hip hop. And we're right. like, this is the craziest thing. Wow. You know, it's, it's unimaginable. Totally. Totally. But I, I think it's it's interesting with the idea of jazz as social music mm. um, that, you know, it's obviously so in the conversation now where, you know, being black in America is an act of resistance. Right. You know, like, you know, succeeding being black in America is activism and like, sure. you know, this, so that's, that's the same thing we're talking about, right? But but now we, I guess, with the luxury of you know, look at history and have the conversation as accessible as it is now, it, we can really see that it's wow. That you know, what jazz was expressing then—that was just one, you know, one sub corner of us of, of of the entire expression. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's now come into a much broader conversation. So that's that's pretty amazing. You know, yeah. 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 So you talked a little bit about, you know, you kind of make music for yourself. Um, and I saw you having a conversation on Twitter about uh, how do you find your audience? Yeah. Um, so how, how do, let me turn that back on you. How do, how do you find your audience? <laughs> um, I, I am very grateful. It's not lost on me at all. I'm grateful to have debuted on a major label before the digital culture happened. You know, I had a record signed to Universal in the UK um, and it came out in 2000. And 
you know, back then we still had compilations and, you know, <laughs> um, right. and, and the, I had a really great A&R and great team. It was funny. The only country that didn't release it domestically was actually America. Mm -hmm. um, Canada did and Brazil did, but anyway, <laughs> um, but that, you know, that got me touring. It got me, it got me a bit like a, a baseline, a base level kind of um, audience. And it gave me enough to sustain off as far mm -hmm. as, you know, being a touring artist and doing more records, doing more work. Um, I've been super diligent with that. Like the number of albums is a bit stupid now. It's like, you know, 20, rec 20 albums in 20 years, you know, without counting remixes and collabs and little things. Sure. Um, and I, I hoped I would like to think through that, that there's a, I'm kind of breadcrumbing it for an audience to come with me and then for new people to come on board and be able to go backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've, I asked that on Twitter because actually someone DM me and kind of bemoaning like, man, no one, no one even likes good music anymore. And this is a common conversation, right? I'm sure it's been, sure, I'm sure our parents had it, our grandparents had it, our great grandparents had it. Forever. <laughs> no one likes good music anymore. Um, right. But so he, he hits me up and, and I was just chatting with him and, and, I, and I checked his, you know, I followed his links and had to listen to his music. And this, this guy had a fucking incredibly produced, like a gospel song, like, mm. which was like an underground breakbeat fucking electronic jazz thing. It was, it was wow. mental. And I don't, I have no idea who he is. No one knows who he is. So he's like, man, I just, you know, what do I do? And so I was talking to him, him about the three things I tweeted about, which were, um, you know, partnering with a label who can, you know, give you some, some weight mm -hmm. and then building community, like without community to amplify your music, it's not there and collaborate, you know, work, work with people who inspire you and who you, you inspire. And to me, it's probably that simple. I don't, I don't kind of analyze my own, I don't strategize my music in that way. Um, right. But by default, if I look back, that's always what it is. There's collaboration, community and label partnerships. And I can, I can look at any record and think, and you know, that, that record, I thought it could do better. And I can look at what aspect of that kind of formula usually it's the label. <laughs> I can look at that and be like, oh, if that was different, then yeah. Um, right. You know, I have complete faith in the music like that. And, and I, hope the, I, I hope the audience has kind of stayed following, but at the same time, when I'm talking about a kind of a international record career that started in 2000, all those people are now 20 years older. Sure. And, you know, I think we know kind of, through scientific research that the brain kind of calcifies in its new taste department mm -hmm. at a certain, for, for, for a majority of people. So as a certain yeah. age, when you're like, you're no longer really consuming new stuff that lands in the way it did when you were 25. Right. Um, and so I know that, that, it, that if I was just surviving off the, that original audience, that's kind of a, a losing game. Sure. Um, so, you know, I just, I just, I try and stay connected with musicians and community and industry and with musicians, you know, in a, in a pre COVID and hopefully post COVID world, and then pretty much, you know, all of my, most of my collaborators in LA are younger than me. Um, mm -hmm. 
there was one band um, that they asked me to play play keys in it, and I realized I was like, wait, I'm the old dude in the band, <laughs> <laughs> and that had never happened. I was I was like only sure. I was like probably 43 then or something. I was like, what? Um, we all get to that point, right? And but that's you know I love that kind of that 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 playbook has been laid out by a lot of people. You know, Miles did that. He always had a young band. Right. Betty Carter always had a young band. Art Blakey always had a young band. Sure. And I think the nature of jazz where it feeds through the sense of the sense of individual improvisation contributing to a social conversation on the bandstand, I think the way that, that the intergenerationality of it can has a lot of is very two way. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's, that's possibly, I haven't thought about this before saying it right now, so it's a bit hairy, but um, that, that's possibly more, more potent than regular conversation. Like intergenerational mm-hmm. conversation is not easy in the real world. Like, sure. you know, some people be like, no, my dad's cool. But what if you talk to someone else's grandfather? Right. How's that? How's that conversation? Yeah. But this music form means that they could have a conversation and almost be in two different dialects, but what would meet in the middle feeds them both mm-hmm. and potentially create something really potently, you know, great. Um, so yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. So thank you. Yeah, that's one. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And I love that you broke it down for that guy. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, to me, like helping other people solve their problems is, is such an important workout. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I always think of it, it, you know, it's like, it's going to the gym, right? Cause it's so much harder to do it for ourselves. 100%. Yeah. And there's a sense of, there's, there's a sense of, you know, what am I contributing to the world? Right. And that, you know, like I, I have a, I have a teenage son and so I see the kind of biological continuation of me, even though it's completely him. Mm-hmm. But as far as my life's work professionally in music, it's like, okay, so I'm leaving some streaming MP3s in the universe, but what am I contributing? And so I feel like that's really something to honor where as, you know, as one progresses to becoming a, an elder in an industry, that by you know supporting and sharing with and lifting up the youngers that the elder lives forever you know it's like absolutely and and those ideas get they get passed on and transformed through the person you help and usually made better so it's like you know, if you, you can't break the chain basically you know right. it's like you got to be part of that process for the world to get better sure yeah well i and i also think so you know you've had church mm you know, as, as a, as a live night, um, for many years. And and I think that's a contribution. Like, I think, you know, that's the kind of night that people remember for the rest of their Mm. lives. I'm that special to hear, hear someone say that. I mean, if, if someone does, that's, that's priceless, man. Well, I, you know, you go back, you know, you were talking about community, Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's and you know, look, I've I've been to thousands of clubs and and, you know, on some level, they're all good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just hearing a dude play records and, you know, having some nice drinks is like fine. Yeah. But 
I think what you were doing was special, right? Between, you know, the live music and the records and the, the sense of community and the, the experience that people are sharing, um, you know, and I think of it, uh, uh, you know, along the nights that I had at, at Brass or Giant Step or mm -hmm. Body and Soul or uh, Firecracker or, you know, there's there's this great lineage totally. of nights out that are meaningful. And yeah. you, you carry those memories, you know, with you mm -hmm. as you move on. Um, I'm curious, you know, that's, I'm sure, a void now with the, the pandemic, maybe for you, but sure. certainly for, for your audience, your community. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do? Is, it, is there any, <laughs> you know, is, do, you, do you just have to wait that out? Is it, how much are you thinking about, you know, live streaming and some of that, sure. some of the virtual stuff? Yeah, I've, I have definitely jumped on board. Um, I, March the 12th, I was driving up to San Fran to play SF Jazz with my friend Haley Nicewanger with her band. And um, so she was in the car and her girlfriend and we're driving up and we knew that Gavin Newsom was about to talk. So we had the radio on. And so we're maybe one hour out from San Fran from the gig that night and mm. the governor shuts it all down, right? Sure. So, and we're playing Oakland, we're doing church in Oakland the next night, obviously gone. And we just pulled over the side of the road sparked up a joint and has watched our calendars just fucking empty out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's staying, stating the obvious at this point, but that also happened. That might've been the first industry to go. Like it happened yeah. just like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like my whole, everyone had a whole year planned out, poof, gone. Right. You would not be able to stay home, brother. You would not be able to plug in, turn on or drop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag or skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. So we spent the year, the, that weekend chilling up at a friend's place in Oakland, which is great, just decompressed from the shock. And then I decided that, okay, touring is never coming back. And I don't know how much I believe that in my heart, but that's what I definitely said to myself. Touring's never coming back, so, something, so everything is different now. And so I made sure I was open straight away. Um, and I've been talking with a, a organization called Initiatives of Change based in Richmond. Mm -hmm. They were doing this project where they were, were gonna take me to Hiroshima to meet with atomic bomb survivors and hear their stories and then present um, new music work inspired by that. Wow. Amazing fucking projects. And I, I was 100% in. And then the pandemic hit, so that was canceled and they, you know, not knowing when anything would change, they pivoted really quick and they said, we want to use the same budget and do an online festival. So they did this thing called La Saber Festival and brought me on as the founding artist in residence and I helped curate some stuff and I remix artists each month. And mm. But for that, I had, to, I had to learn live streaming like immediately, basically. <laughs> so, so that was cool um, to yeah. like get the, get the basic knowledge down. And then... I've been wanting for years, I've been wanting to start a Patreon mm -hmm. and I didn't, I never did because I felt like, you know, how can I promise monthly anything if I never know where I am? Right. And so now I'm like, okay, well, if there's no touring, I'm nowhere. So I'm here so I can, I can commit to monthlies. So I started the Patreon 
at what arguably is probably the worst time in history to start a Patreon as far as society goes. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, Although it's understandable. It's totally understandable, of course. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's a different conversation, but I find it really interesting that OnlyFans is everyone understands what it, how it works. But no one understands how Patreon works and they're the same mm. thing. Yeah. So that's interesting. But um, so one thing I do on the Patreon is each month we do a community Zoom where everyone mm. brings along a piece of music they're inspired by. And yeah, so we cool. listen to the music together and we talk about it. And there's a whole, there's a whole lot of other shit I do for on it, but that really has shown me the depth of community that can be achieved online. Because these are like, you know, they're, they're kind of candid conversations about a piece of music that which is, mm -hmm. but it's also a little catch up and familiarity grows month to month. And it's interesting because as far as the audience experience goes, all I can compare that to is the, the person who comes up to me at the end of a gig and is like, oh, hi, man, that was, that was awesome. And we say, say quick hi, but there's not much substance to that conversation. It's, a, it's, right. it's an exchange of gratitude and appreciation and I, I totally appreciate that. And it's nice. It's really nice to hear that the, the experience connects with someone, but doing this, with the, the, the zoom, yeah, it, it's a whole different thing. Like, yeah, sure. And that, that's the most, actually, that's the most community I've ever felt with audience in my entire career. Mm. Um, so that's interesting to me. That's amazing. Yeah, and then you know, one guy will be in Argentina, one's in Finland or wherever, some in the States. And this is it's cool. So I love that your instant response was touring's never coming back. <laughs> and no, and I'm serious. Uh and here's why. Mm. Because, because most of the world in that moment mm -hmm was telling themselves it's not going to be that bad. <laughs> it'll be bad. It'll be fine by June. <laughs> totally. Or, you know, I was, you know, I was working with a company and they, they like everybody, they announced we're going to shut down for two weeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Or, you know, shut our door. Everyone worked from home for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, no, two more weeks. Oh, no, no. Th three more months. Right. Like, and we have this incremental approach to bad news mm -hmm. where and I, and I think it's, there's a lot of human nature in that that we want to feel comfort we want to be able to say everything's going to be okay yeah and i totally understandable of course mm -hmm. but i think we do ourselves a disservice mm -hmm. right when we sugarcoat things and when we under you know we we consciously underestimate mm -hmm. the impact and, mm -hmm. and I always think like we'd be much better off as a society had we done what you did, right? Had we gone, oh, we're fucked. Now let's figure out what to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because it, it opens up because if you can let, you know, if you can let go of clinging on to comfort, Perfect. then you can actually get creative and you can think about solutions. Yeah. yeah. And so the, and that's what you've done. Like, and you've come up with something that, that arguably you know, it doesn't replace what you were doing before, but you've come up with something that you couldn't have created. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before. Yeah. Which is, that's amazing. And it's, and also like, you know, I never, almost, almost never ever would set up my live rig 
at home or in the studio sure. because it's always going out. Yeah. So I broke it down the other day because I had to move house. That's the first time it's got broken down since March. Mm-hmm. And, but that's been really cool too, because it's like, you know, it's, it's always like the physicality of it slightly changes depending on the size of the stage or the whatever, whatever. Um, yeah. But to really be getting into it in a set way has been fun. Um, and being off the road has been so good. <laughs> I mean, like literally I, I carry, I carry maybe 150 pounds or more of shit around with me, including my, you know, including my own luggage. Yeah. Yeah. And then setting up night after night, packing down, you know, economy class, whatever, just cramped up, not sleeping. Sure. And I, I, I enjoy all that. Like, honestly, yeah. but yeah. you know, this year I had a, I've had a back issue, finally got an MRI. It's a herniated disc Ugh. and it's getting better, which is great. But just, I'm imagining, fuck, I had a, her- I had a herniated disc. What if I'd been touring all year? Like, right. Yeah. Nah, this is the yeah. perfect timing <laughs> for a little break. <laughs> sure. If you're enjoying this one, you know, uh, I've known Mark's music for a long time, but I, I we didn't know each other until now. I was actually reminded about him on the Fusicology, my Fusicology email that I get every week. Um, so if you want to go back in the Rebel Radio archives, we had Asia Shine, the founder of Fusicology, which is, you know, the place to find soulful music live, recorded, virtual, all of the above. Um, we, ha- we had a great time talking about music and business and what it's like being an a independent media entrepreneur. So go back and check out Ozzy Shine after you finish up here with Mark DeCliblo. So, so back to that, that moment, that feeling, yeah. is, that, is that just a... Like, are you always that way? Is that a personality trait? Mm. Uh, or was that a, a unique, I mean, it's a unique situation. I mean, I, the one thing I can look at, which is not comparative, but, um, you know, I've moved country a number of times. And every time I've left something professional behind that I've built. Mm. So, like in, in New Zealand, in Auckland, there was this underground wine cellar jazz club that I put together and I booked it. I played there a lot. You know, I, I felt like the culture of what we'd done was built around what I had about around my, my contribution. And so in leaving New Zealand and choosing to move, move to the UK, I'm thinking, well, but I'm scared to leave that. Like what's going to happen? And so I had to learn very quickly how to, how to give it to someone else and and then let go of it emotionally because mm-hmm. they're not going to do what I'm, what I would have done with it. And then right. in, in London, there was sure. something similar and I didn't, I just, I just finished it. I was like, cool, that's done. And, um, so, so maybe those kinds of things kind of coupled with the actual physical moving country, starting a new life, maybe there's a sense of compartmentalizing attachment or something. Um, mm. not to sound too cold and calculating, <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I, I think the, um, I think one of the biggest challenges to success mm. creatively and, and in business is the inability to let go. Oh my God. Yeah. And I, I suffer from that in different ways. Absolutely. You know, but seemingly in, in this one way we're talking about, it's not an issue. 
Cause I, cool. cause I, you I mean, gotta take what you can get. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, it was a great, it was a great lesson too. And when you create white space, that things connect do actually come in like things are fucking waiting to come in and they're just like man when were you gonna free up some time <laughs> yeah sure so that's cool that's amazing and you know i i, I still don't think turns coming back like for a long time not the way i was doing yeah. it, like a different country every night Nah. yeah i don't either i think i think it's a long ways away Over. Over. um and so i have to ask you 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 know on that note mm. um there was another thing I saw on Twitter, uh, you know, in response to the announcement about Save Live, Mark Geiger's new company, where he's going to go buy up a bunch of venues. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the dude, but it doesn't 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 bode well to me. So, uh, well, you know, look for anyone who doesn't know, he's he's a big music agent. You know, mm -hmm. one of the top agents in the business. Just left starting his own thing. He's got a bunch of other people's money and he's got a, you know, he's got $75 million fund to go buy up music venues. Um, and he's named the company save live, which I think is a bit of good branding. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it's, here's the thing. I'm not, I, uh, I'm not going to really take a position on it. Mm. I think that, the industry and fans are looking for a solution that enables us to enjoy live music in the future. Absolutely. No question about it. And the artists, right? Artists obviously need venues yes. to perform at. Yes. Um, so, you know, this is his swing at a problem that we all, you know, share uh, or care about. And it's going to benefit him maybe more than anyone else. <laughs> um, so... You know, and, and, and on some, you know, on paper, that's good business, right? Is there's there's uh, what you would call distressed assets out there and you can go buy things cheap and save the businesses, whatever that means, take yeah. a piece for yourself and, you know, whatever. So, um, but, I, but I get, you know, I get the reaction and it wasn't just you. I saw, you know, people on, on the feed, yeah. you know, sharing a lot of uh skepticism about mm -hmm. you know motives and 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 you know what i assume like what, what it's actually going to mean for these venues yeah um what should happen well i i think i don't believe he's an altruist and i say that because the press yeah. coverage of it maintains that he'll have a 51 percent share in every venue right now if he was like i'm gonna invest in you like for negative interest basically and give you a whole chunk of change and i'm going to take 20 percent of your company i'd be like that is a good dude sure and a clever businessman who believes right. it's money to make him music but if he's taking 51 percent controlling interest i think he's just trying to fucking gut things um but i'm not taking a stance on it either <laughs> Um, but but I get, I, when I say, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. Yes, I mean, you could. Who knows, who knows what the right? Answer, but but the, but I think if we if we take him out of the picture for a second, there's a there's a massive fucking problem. I mean, right. we yeah. have venues that have been closed for seven months that still won't be reopening for at least the rest of the year, if not, yeah. well, actually, definitely longer. Yeah. Um, I haven't spoken to many venue owners, but one venue I've spoken to. 
I know the, I know that they stop, they, they basically stopped paying rent when the pandemic started. Sure. And the, the, and they try and negotiate a rent break or a lower break or something. And the landlord wants full rent. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to presume that that is possibly a scenario that's happening to a lot of venues. I'm sure it is. So you're talking about spaces and we're not talking about the staple center or like, you know, we're talking about spaces which are built on founded on passion and a labor of love that probably lose money most nights. And when they have a great night that just covers the losses, it's a break even fucking business. It's not like they have a hundred grand sitting in the bank account in case it's a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I, I think the choice at that point for a lot of people must be, am I going to walk away or am I going to take this money and lose control of this, but have it live? Sure. And that's a really hard decision. Like I kind of, I, I kind of favor, and it's the purest in me. I kind of favor walking away. It was like, you know, declare the company bankrupt and a new and new ecosystem will grow where the old ecosystem was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's, that hurts me from a nostalgic point of view, like venues I love and love playing and, and knowing already that some of them will disappear. Cause it's not like Mark Geiger is going to bail out every venue. Right. Of um, course. So yeah, a lot of will disappear, but what's wrong with some change, like some, some, some foundational change, like the, the music industry was fucking broken before COVID. Yeah. You know, most touring musicians pretty much across genres in most kind of tiers, there are exceptions, of course, but most are earning the same dollar figure they would have been earning 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, inflation hasn't stopped. <laughs> you know, everything's more expensive. The right. dollar value is worth less, <clears throat> but you're getting the same number of units 20 years later. Right. And that's not even looking at, you know, Spotify and whatever else. It's just, it's fucked, man. So yeah, I I think there's some really hardcore change that needs to happen. I don't feel well informed enough to be like, this is what it should be, but I do feel like this is an opportunity for there to be fundamental changes. I mean, that, that, that the DMCA, that, that was the digital millennium copyright act that was put in law before, I think before YouTube even existed. Right. Before yeah, Google that was really existed. in response like to Napster, to, right? I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like when you know, there's some foundation that the foundations are not built. So whether it reopens, if it reopens in the same way it was, I'm kind of like I'm seeing it in a different way now, having had a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I do want to tour, but not not like I was before. I, sure. I, I would like to tour the, the things I really want to play where I want to, where I want to go at a level of comfort that I feel I've earned. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, look, you'd like to think that we can come out of this smarter and stronger, yeah. you know, maybe a bit leaner, mm-hmm. you know, having, having uh, figured some things out. That's, you know, that's, that's my optimistic side. Um, you know, I, again, kind of what we were talking about before. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure to not, not change. Totally. And just yeah. think this thing, you know, wait, wait for it to be over and then try to go back yeah. to, you know, the way it was before, which is not realistic, but, you know, 
who knows? Every, everyone's going to handle it a little bit differently. For real. I, I just, I hope there are, I hope that the musicians kind of, you know, jobbing musicians from before. Like I, I know, I know, I know a lot of my kind of extended community are kind of just waiting for, waiting for it to come back and waiting for it to yeah. be over. And yeah, I just, I, I do kind of, I feel for them. Like I feel like proactiveness, like this is sure. really, and, and proactiveness can be a state of mind. You know, it doesn't actually have to mean a whole plan, like a, like a game book, but, um, sure. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the, our biggest opportunity right now is we have the opportunity to be, you know, mentally proactive. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you? What are you, what are you excited about? What am I excited about? We, we just dropped the trio record, which is fun, um, called Dreamweavers. First time doing a trio record since 1996, and first time I let someone else produce a record as well. So that was kind of interesting. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so that's there, and there's a there's a whole lot of remixes um, and little productions I've done over, over the last few months coming out. Um, a lot for Boomerang Boomerang Records, UK label. It's my first time working with them. So there's that, and then there's what else is happening? It's always more. There's a couple of there's a couple of albums in the can. Okay. So, I'm, so I'm talking to labels about these two albums, which are two pro two different projects. One nice. of them is a is a trio with um, Shigeto and uh, Melanie Charles. Shigeto is a producer from Detroit, is mm. super dope drummer, and Melanie fucks with the SP sampler and flute and sings, and so it's, that's a crazy little unit. Um, but yeah, so you know, new projects, kind of. Well, those are almost old projects now because you know the way sure. the, the cycle goes. You record it, it kind of sits in the can till it's till the business is right. Yeah. Um, I have fantasies of making an, my own idea of an ambient meets piano album. Okay. Um, and that's you know I've kind of started experimenting with that a little bit. I'm not quite sure it's there yet. So that's yeah. That'll be nice. Some kind of introspective vibe. Um, and then I, I was lucky to get awarded a fellowship, which gets, which covers me to go to Japan for three months to do a project there, nice. which is supposed to start in March. Oh, that sounds amazing. But, you know, I don't know if we'll be able to travel from, from America to Japan by March. Um, but that's super cool. It's like my dad. I mean, if you're staying three months and you can quarantine or whatever, I mean, probably, if, yeah, if they probably leave, fine. If they leave in the door in the first place, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, my, my dad did, I mentioned earlier, he lived there for 20 years from like, 53 to 73 and when he was dying he wrote his memoir and his memoir it really details his 20 years in japan mm, cool. so, this, so this fellowship project is for me to go to japan and basically use his memoir as a guidebook and retrace his path wow um, and then create new new, new work from that inspiration no, so that sounds I'm amazing super excited by that that's like yeah i just i just need to be able to go there <laughs> for sure yeah Amazing. All right, I got to get to a lightning round before I let you uh, get back to it. Yeah, man. Uh, what's your favorite city to travel to? Kyoto. Such a great place. It's so beautiful. I, it used to be Tokyo, but I spent more time in Kyoto recently, and it's just mm. it's a vibe. All the rivers running through it and stuff. 
Yeah, good Love people, good food. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Who's your favorite DJ? Oh. I don't know if I can lightning this one. <laughs> yeah. I would I I I I give I give it to Spinner. Oh, nice. Yeah, DJ Spinner. And and that yeah. that was a close call tied with a hundred other people. So <laughs> <laughs> um what's the last great book you read? The last great book I read was actually Kindred, Octavia mm. Octavia Butler. Um, I'm a huge sci-fi fan, but I had never read Octavia Butler and people have been saying for years, Oh, you got to check her out. And so I, Kindred was my first one and it just blew my mind. I, I haven't, I hadn't read a fiction page turner like that in maybe a decade. Nice. So yeah, great. Especially, you know, in these times, her work is quite prophetic. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what movie have you seen the most in your life? Ooh, what a great question. Probably. The first Star Wars movie. Okay. Yeah. We used to have, um, in the eighties at home, we had a little eight millimeter home, home camera thing. And my parents had put up a sheet and project stuff there and then my dad was always traveling to asia so he'd find these like bootleg this and that like <laughs> so we, cool. we had eight millimeters of star wars and oh jet, wow and the jetsons that's fun i think yeah those two so i haven't seen the jetsons much since then but definitely <laughs> you know having raised a child we, sure. definitely, we definitely did star wars so um, yeah, yeah yeah i'd probably say that one nice yeah uh name someone you haven't met who has taught you the most Wow. Okay, there's there'd be so many of these people in my life. Um, but I would say I would say Miles, Miles Davis. Yeah, his I mean I'm a you know, massive fan and student of his music which goes without question. Um, sure. But the way he specifically kept changing, mm -hmm. you know, almost every record was a, was like a reincarnation yeah. to the point where he would put out music that his fans would be like, what the fuck is this? I like the last record. And then by the time he puts out the next record, they get hip to the previous record. And like, right. now, now they're like, oh, what the fuck is this? You know? <laughs> um, sure. And so there's a, a constant evolution in what he did. And, and he also, you know, if there's like a, you know, a Jesse Owens of trumpet, it wasn't him. You know, he, he, he's not like the perfect trumpet player. Yeah. And I love that. You know, there's so much life and personality and persona in the idiosyncrasies of or the imperfections of his playing. Mm -hmm. um, and then that kind of set in the, kind of set as the stone in the kind of, in the setting of, of his bands where he'd, he'd, keep, he'd keep changing bands with you know, new young players, different style players. And then if you listen to like, you listen to him on, 
like his last record, the posthumous ones, they do bop. Mm -hmm. And you compare that to something he did in, did in the 40s for Prestige, he's playing the same way. Like his playing didn't really change. Mm. But he had the vision to kind of create around it what would, what would create the change. Is and there and one... also he, he, could not be in, he, he could not be playing and it was his record. Mm. Like he could play one note 40 minutes later, but the whole thing is like, you know, his energy would pull these other musicians to a focus, focus point, which they can't have without him being in the room. Yeah, that shit's deep. Yeah. Sure. Is there one Miles record that you go to more than the rest? Hmm. Probably one of my, my first one was, um, I think it was 19... 61 live in Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. um, it's called My Funny Valentine and Four and More. It's a double album. That was the first one I heard. And the first time I heard Herbie, actually that band, it's Herbie, Roncado, Tony Williams, George Coleman on sax. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia in that for me. And then the way the, way the rhythm section and Herbie particularly, the way Herbie plays, I was laughing about this to a fan recently. So. Herbie Hancock was 21 years old when this concert was recorded in Carnegie Hall. It was a live gig, not a studio date. He's 21. Mm -hmm. And now there's still, like, piano players are still trying to reach that level of kind of connect connectivity and, and creativity. And he did it, like, when he was 21 years old in 1961. <laughs> like, Amazing. <what>? Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, both of those guys, for anybody, I don't care if you're a jazz fan or not, but both of their autobiographies oh my God, yeah. are, are incredible. The Herbie yeah. one and yeah. the Miles one. I just mm -hmm. read Miles uh, earlier this year. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I mean, you take it with a couple of bags of salt, but it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I love sure. it, man. I yeah. love it. Hey, last question. If I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? <laughs> I love these questions. Probably something like, um, that's great, but have, what if we tried to do it like this? <laughs> yeah, I think I would expect that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, it's funny because that's definitely a euphemistic compared to how I was when I was younger. Sure. Um, but, I, but it's interesting now getting to a point where I'm just, I'm, I'm very open to that being brought to me as well. You know, and yeah. that's been a learning curve, but I think, um, you know, life gets us there when it gets us there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, I really appreciate this conversation. It's so much fun. Yeah, man. Really enjoyed talking with you too. Love to do it again sometime. And I want to encourage everybody. Um, first of all, anyone who hasn't seen the live remixing stuff that you do, uh, is that's a real treat. It's, it's amazing. And uh, and everyone should check out the Patreon. It sounds like amazing things happening on Patreon. So I want to encourage everybody to get down with that. Thanks, man. I appreciate the support and, um, yeah, really fun conversation. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that was Mark the Clive Lowe on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Leave us a comment. Uh, hit us on Twitter or Facebook. It's at Rebel Radio Net. You can find videos of a lot of our episodes on our YouTube channel. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.